Last week we begun a series in the book of 1 Timothy to understand one thing, what God's desire and purpose is for his church. How the church should be shaped and formed and built according to his standard. And as we talked about the first couple of verses, we looked at two subjects that help us understand what this book is. The how, when, where, what of this book is found in who Timothy is and what the church of Ephesus is all about. And if you recall, if you were here last week, we remember that Paul was instrumental in building the beginning stages of the church of Ephesus. And knowing that he was going to leave and perhaps never see the faces of these Christians again, he sits down with the elders and almost in prophetic fashion warns them about the dangers that lie ahead. And it's really the dangers for many churches, if not all churches. He sits down with these leaders and he says, listen to me, it is very possible that wolves will come in or wolves will come from the inside out and they will teach false things to your people and they will want to gather disciples for themselves. Be careful, elders. Be very careful. And as they prayed and wept before Paul departed, within a few short years, what became a warning and a fearful thought was a reality. So Paul writes to Timothy, And he says, Timothy, I need you to go down to Ephesus and I need you to put things in order. And one of the things that Timothy first had to do was some deconstruction. Was some deconstruction. Before Timothy could build anything, before God can build anything, oftentimes he needs to tear some things down. He needs to remove, he needs to shift, he needs to sometimes completely eliminate elements, whether, listen, in a church or even in your life and mine. For something to have full fruition, many times God needs to, by His Spirit, pluck things out first, lest what is deadly poisons what can be good. That's true in gardening. That's true in any aspect of life. Oftentimes, what we need to do is remove what is deadly before anything of life can sprout and become real. Here's an example of that. In Jeremiah chapter 1, when God calls this young man to preach, he describes what his ministry will look like. He tells Jeremiah what his mouth in preaching the word of the Lord will actually do. Now listen to these words and weigh the negative compared to the positive. In Jeremiah 1.10, it says, See, God tells Jeremiah, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to do what? Six things. To pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. To build and to plant. Those are six things. Now out of the six, how many of them have to do with negative? Four. And you got two that are positive. But before Jeremiah can see anything built or planted, there had to be some destruction, there had to be some plucking, there had to be some breaking down. That's not the fun part, but it's a necessary part. And God sometimes has to do that in a local church, like Jesus who came into the temple more than once and cleansed the temple. I love that. When you read in one of the accounts of Jesus coming in and he removes the things that he needed to remove because they, t- they turned the place into a business, what happens next in sequence is that the blind and the lame came in and they were healed. 
Things sometimes need to be pushed out of the way. Listen to this. Ready for this one? People need to get out of the way sometimes in order for God to do what he really wants to do in a place. And that's true on a congregational level, and you better believe that it's true on a personal level. If we want God to do something in us, we have to be willing for him to do some deconstruction. And that includes removing habits. That includes removing, ready, people. I think that one stings the most. Every time you say people, people are money, people are money. That's the one that get people worried. But if we're praying, Lord, mold me, shape me, melt me into the image of your son, there has to be some refining. And it's painful at times. And don't be surprised if things come to the surface in your life as you desire to get closer and closer to the will of God. He will indeed oftentimes break some things down, pluck some things up, destroy some things even before he can build or plant. This was the case for the church of Ephesus. Before anything can look like what God wanted to look like, things need to be removed. Removed or at least corrected. And we read now, as we left off in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. You know why? Because Timothy, as we learned last week, was probably terrified of the task at hand. He, here's a young man who has his own things going on in his own heart. It's quite possible that Timothy was a timid young man because we're going to learn that Paul exhorts him not to be operating in the spirit of fear. And it's possible that Timothy was even worried because he was a young man. And it was, it was very likely that people said, who's this young guy preaching? Who thinks he is? You, know, you have an experienced life. You have no authority over me. Do you know what it's like to be like this? Do you know what it's like to go through this? And Timothy was probably like, I have no right to preach. How am I going to preach to people when I haven't had their life experiences? And you read later on, let no one despise you because of your youth, Timothy. And so he has his own things going on. And on top of that, he has people around him that are making it so much more difficult. And Timothy is calling up probably some people saying, is there another place I can go to serve? Because I don't know if I want to stay at Ephesus. Or perhaps he wanted to leave and meet Paul and have Paul come and deal with it himself. But Paul says, Timothy, remain at Ephesus. Know this, brothers and sisters, when things get difficult in life and ministry and marriage and everything else, it's easy to run away from it. Oftentimes God will say, stay and exhaust your options, exhaust yourself in prayer before you even think about moving. Remain at Ephesus, and what are you going to do at Ephesus? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. You know, it's possible for a church at one point to preach the whole counsel of God, to be faithful to the scriptures and over time drift from that place. Drift from the scriptures and end up in a place that is much contrary to what the Bible has for us. Now, we don't know if this teaching, these strange teachings were coming from the leadership level or from people that were just in the congregation, but there is strong indication that it was the leadership level. Because when you read 1 Timothy, you see that there's a, there's a great detail about what an elder should look like, what a pastor should look like, what leaders in the church should look like, and what they should be teaching. And so it's very likely that this is a leadership now teaching these different things. And Timothy here, you can see why he was probably intimidated to face them. But nevertheless, Paul exhorts him. Because doctrine is of vital importance in the church. When you hear the word doctrine, what does it mean? It means a set of beliefs that are being taught, 
about what we stand as the people of God in the faith. And so doctrine, though it may not be important to many people in how they measure a church, it is of central, vital importance to how a local body operates. It is totally foundational. If doctrine is not right, then nothing else will go right. The pulpit is the steering wheel for the church. Whatever happens and declared from here will determine the direction of the church over time. It's true. This is why Paul makes it of utmost importance in an emergency fashion to tell Timothy to make sure that everything concerning teaching is first set and things are removed and corrected. And what the church proclaims determines, again, the direction of the church. And here's this church declaring three things. What do we see in our Bibles? That you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Any different doctrine. Here's a category of anything that is contrary to the will of God. It can be adding to the word of God. It could be removing from the word of God. It could be even, this is the more subtle one, taking the word of God, opening your Bible, and even speaking verses, but removing the context, removing its original meaning, and trying to make it say what you want it to say, when in contrast, it is contradicting the Bible altogether. And that's what it seems to be happening here. It seems like this church is not necessarily teaching anti-Bible. They're not saying the Bible is not the word of God. They're not saying Jesus is not Lord. It's not as threatening as other scenarios that we see in the epistles. It is, it is threatening, but it's not as clear-cut false teaching. What's happening here is you can see that the people that were teaching these things were using the Bible, but were emphasizing and focusing on things that they should not be emphasizing and focusing on. So that's why we see don't devote yourself to what? Myths. Myths is the first thing. What's a myth? Well, in this context, it was probably the fact that they were looking into the Bible and trying to create stories that were not there. They were looking at the narrative of Scripture and they were trying to conjure up some kind of a conclusion based on imagination or tradition. And so it would be like trying to fill in the gaps of maybe Old Testament stories or, or, or more specifically, look what he says. He says, myths or what? Endless genealogies. You've seen genealogies in your Bible, correct? You've seen chapters of genealogies. And what these false teachers were doing was they were going to the lists of names and it was very likely that they were trying to take certain names of people and create a story about them that wasn't true. Or they were going to these genealogies and trying to find some hidden mystical spiritual code and create some kind of a conclusion that was not really there nor was it intended to be there. It was a mishandling of the ancient records of the people of God. And they were trying to do this. Ready? They were trying to sound deep. They were trying to find some hidden truths in there that nobody else saw but the elders at Ephesus saw. And so Paul's saying, don't devote. In fact, they were devoting themselves to this. They spent all their time and energy studying and preaching and teaching myths and endless genealogies, things that did not have concrete conclusions, things that did not have solid things to chew on. It was just all up in the air, and it was all philosophy and all these different things, using things to try to make themselves sound deep and different. 
you know there's a way to study your Bible and absolutely waste your time doing it? That's exactly what they were doing. Who knows how many hours and days and weeks they were spending diving into the scriptures and trying to find something that it wasn't even there. And Paul wants to tackle that kind of teaching head on. Because he says here, look, which promotes speculations. All it does is give out ideas and has no application and it has no proof of being true in the first place. All it does is lead to controversy, debate, no final answers, pointless, no change lives. Now as we hear this, I want us to pause for a second and if you have your Bibles, it will really help to understand how important teaching is in the church. Right teaching, correct teaching. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a few verses just so that we can feel what this book is really trying to emphasize. Look at Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.10. Verse 10. He says in the second part, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So we'll get to that later. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now go to chapter 4, verse 6. In the second part, he's saying, being trained in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 13 of the same chapter, chapter 4. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching, or doctrine, to teaching. Look at verse 16. Keep close, a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's not done yet. Chapter 6, verse 1. What does he say? He says here that they are to do what? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So we know from cover to cover of this book, what Paul is trying to shape in the church is the right handling of the word of God. That is the centerpiece of the church. That is the life-giving force of the church. That is the very thing that will steer the church in the right direction. And here's the, here's the main point of this whole message. We understand that we got to get this right. We understand that we got to teach this right. We understand that we got to receive it right. But what is the purpose of the Word of God? What is the purpose of me, you, studying, breaking it down, comparing Scripture with Scripture, hearing sermons every single week, twice a week, three times a week, and some of you sermons throughout the week in your cars, podcasts? What is the point of the Word of God? What's burning in Timothy's heart to say, we need right teaching? Why? So we're right, so we don't contradict ourselves. It's not the case at all. In verse five of chapter one, he says, the aim of our charge. Other translations would say, now the purpose of the commandment is, it's not to impress individuals with my knowledge of scripture every morning. It's not to promote debate amongst the people of God so that one side can prove how they know the scriptures more than the other side. It's not even to offer mere principles and moral guidelines in this life. Paul says the aim of our charge is what? Love. 
love. What he's trying to say here is that the purpose of you understanding the word of God rightly and the purpose of you handling it correctly is so that it would promote one area of every person's life and that is how they love. That is a very sobering and humbling reality check for all of us and our relationship to the word of God, for the preacher and for the listener, for the reader and for the one who is the theologian. They have to understand that the end goal of all of this that you hold every day, that you open every day, that you get the verse of the day, all of that has one goal in the end, to help you love better. Love who? Well, this love is aimed in three directions. The type of love that God has in mind is a love towards him, is a love towards God himself, is a love towards the people of God, and it's a love towards an unbelieving world. If that over the years is not increasing in our lives, we have to check how and why we are reading, hearing, preaching, teaching, studying our Bibles. These false teachers, that was not their aim. We don't know their motives. Paul right here doesn't immediately reveal their motives. But whatever they were doing with their presentation, with their handling of the scriptures, it was not promoting a three-directional love in the people of God, including themselves. Paul says that's not the aim of the word of God in the church. The aim of the word of God is that it would do something to your affections and even your practical way of life. Love for God. Love for your brothers and sisters. Love for the unbelieving world. Love for God. When a preacher prepares to preach, his ultimate prayer is that whenever he is up on a pulpit, behind a music stand, on the streets, wherever it may be, his, his ultimate desire should be to be as hidden as possible and that God's voice would be clearer and clearer. And that as that person declares the truths of God, he would disappear and Christ would become more visible. That is, that is the true prayer of a true preacher. And as you sit here week after week, night after night, Sunday morning and Friday evenings, know this, that every message is prayerfully anticipating that it would draw you closer to the feet of Jesus Christ. Would you like to know one of the most discouraging things that a true preacher will hear from people that are on the receiving end of his ministry? You might think when you talk about other preachers and how good they are. You might think it's when you tell them that you get nothing from them. I think that one of the reasons and one of the ways, rather, a, a, a true minister can be discouraged is that when he learns that the result of his ministry is drawing believers to him more than is Christ. Now, it is true that there is a natural attraction to somebody who unapologetically and unashamedly preaches the whole counsel of God. There is this drawing, right? You know why? Because the Bible says in Isaiah, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. We are naturally cheerful and thankful and grateful and drawn to, especially as people who love truth, when we see somebody who is faithfully declaring who Christ is, the gospel. We're drawn to them, we're appreciative, and we praise God for them, that's fine. But I think it's important to understand that if the gratitude of a hearer 
to the messenger is not because his message drew him or her closer to Christ, then know this, that messenger will experience genuine sorrow. John the Baptist, when he learned that people were flocking to Jesus Christ and leaving his ministry and were seeping out of his pews and his church building, he didn't have one, he was in the wilderness, his disciples were concerned. And John the Baptist was not concerned. In fact, he was joyful. He goes, in, in paraphrase, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. My job is to help the bride fall deeper in love with her husband-to-be. I am not seeking the love of the bride for myself. My job as the best man is to draw the affections and to describe the bridegroom in such a way that they, at the end of it all, would describe how wonderful he is and not how wonderful the man is. John had no problem people flocking to Jesus. John was a living signpost for it, and the more people flocked to Jesus, the more John rejoiced. So as this word is declared, no matter what the message is, even if we're talking genealogies, even if we're going through Leviticus, even if we're going through Deuteronomy, know this, the prayer of this leadership is that every person at the end of it all would feel tugged towards him, would be, would be amazed and stirred by the wisdom of God, by the love of God, by the patience of God, by even the holiness of God, and at the end of it all, they would be that much closer to Jesus as a result of it. Love for God. The aim of our charge, the aim of our preaching, the aim of the law is love for God, but also love for our brethren. The word of God influences the way we treat others. It should. And what the Bible does is it frames how we fellowship. See, if we don't have the Bible as a central piece of the church, it even affects how we relate to one another. It's so true. And things can get crazy real quick. When the standard is not set on how we ought to forgive one another, things can get messy real quick. When the holiness of God is not described, impure behavior can be interchanged real quick. When the concept of the triune God is not described and the unity that Jesus has and his heart has for the people of God, then division is easily acceptable in our minds. Gossip is more of a practice, so we understand that what the Word of God does is it coaches us how to speak, receive, understand, bear with one another's burdens, forgive. We need the Scriptures to know how to deal with each other. And the more we are familiar with the Scriptures, the more we will know how to be like Jesus to other Jesus followers. I love this letter that many of us might think has no or little value. It's a book called The Letter to Philemon. It doesn't even have chapters. It just has verses. And, and this whole little book, right before the book of Hebrews, I would actually encourage you to turn there. Turn to Philemon. It's right before Hebrews. What's happening in Philemon is that Paul is writing as a friend to a guy named Philemon. And what's happening is Philemon had a slave. And this slave escaped his master. And he perhaps did some wrong things. Maybe he took some things, whatever. But he, he left. He escaped. And he, during that process, was converted, perhaps under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But he visits Paul in prison. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus. And Onesimus is a true believer. And Paul has grown so warm to Onesimus. But he's writing to Philemon to make sure that Philemon would receive him. 
with mercy and grace. And this letter tells us how the Bible, how the person of Christ, how understanding God and his dealings with us shapes how we deal with one another, how we handle situations. Look at how Paul, remember, he's speaking to Philemon. He's writing to a friend on behalf of Onesimus. And look what he says in verse 17. He's talking to Philemon. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Do you see how Paul is speaking to Philemon? Exactly how Jesus speaks to the Father when he talks about you and me. Think of this as Christ speaking to the Father. And reread verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Isn't that what Jesus says to the Father on your behalf and mine? Receive him as you would receive me, Father. And what? If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Do you see the gospel in Philemon? Do you see how Philemon, Paul and Onesimus, they are shaping their relationship in gospel fashion? Do you see how Paul, who understood the love of Christ, the fellowship of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, how he's able now to translate that and how he deals with others? Receive him as you would receive me, and whatever he owes you, put it into my account. That's Jesus written all over it. And so when you and I grow accustomed and we hear and we are saturated with truth, gospel truth, you better believe it's going to help you frame and how you deal with messy situations, conflict, decision-making. Love for the brethren, and not just love for the brethren, but love for an unbelieving world. Unfortunately, many have become what we can term as sermon junkies, where they just go from message to message to message and conference to conference to conference, nothing wrong with conferences, nothing wrong with going to church and hearing a message, but the motive there is just to hear a message. And even if the motive is good, even if the desire is to grow in the knowledge of God, it doesn't affect the person to the degree in which it should propel them to go outside of the church walls. You know, it's amazing when you talk to people who've eaten at a restaurant, a very nice restaurant, I'm sure you can testify to this, that if you've eaten good meal at a place, you can't keep that to yourself. You're going to tell at least one person of a place that you ate, or at least your followers on Instagram are going to know about it when you post it with the filter. Right? When you taste something that is good, when you experience something for yourself, you can't help to keep it to yourself. The natural outcome is that you got to ask others if they've tried it, and you got to invite maybe others so that they can experience what you experienced. And prayfully should the word of God be responded to in such fashion, that as you receive meals week after week, right, as you expose yourself to more truth, as the Bible describes it, sweet as honey, and all these wonderful other things, more valuable than food, that the result of it should be, I can't keep this to myself. i got to tell somebody about the goodness of God. i got to share it somehow. And sometimes that's how people do their Instagram account. That's how people do their Facebook account. They read a verse, they know a verse, they're like, I'm sharing this. I can't keep it to myself. Whoever sees it, I hope they benefit from it. I hope they taste the flavor of it like I did. And so it, the aim is love so that we can invite others to know the love of God as we are exposed to the love of God in the scriptures. And we know that this is not a love that is natural, right? 
Love for God is not natural. That's not what the flesh does. Love for people is not natural, whether it's church people or non-church people. But that's why he says something interesting. Look at verse 5 again of 1 Timothy. He says, the, the aim of our charge is love that issues from three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And when the word is preached rightly, and when it is read with the right motive, those three areas of your life will be affected. Your heart will be affected. It will be transformed over time. Your conscience will be more clear. The assurance of your salvation should be stronger and stronger. The things that are in your life that are not right will be exposed to the light, and you can repent of those things. And then ultimately, your faith will be more and more sincere. And once my heart is dealt with, my conscience is dealt with, my faith is dealt with, it's going to produce this three-dimensional love. And Paul's concern here is that these teachers are not touching on any of those areas because they are not preaching or studying the word of God with the right reasons. And I say this this morning because it's possible to stir away from that. It's possible to swerve outside of that, right? That's why he says here in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these, by swerving from these have what? Wandered away into vain discussion. We can summarize it by this. If I and you, if we, do not come to the word of God with the end goal of being better lovers of God, lovers of people, we will drift over time into vanity. Even if you're exposed to the scriptures, even if you come to the scriptures, if it's not with that end goal in mind, vanity will be a reality. Pointlessness, emptiness, hollowness. Because it's possible for many people who have even the wealth of knowledge that are operating in vanity because they are not having the love as the end goal in their study, in their hearing, in their preaching, in their understanding. In fact, we don't know what their motive was to getting into this. But it left them into vanity because it wasn't, it wasn't focused on love. And there are many people today who might have a relationship with the word of God that is outside of the will of God in this verse as we just read. And they themselves are operating in vanity without knowing it. Here's one, here's one way to approach the word of God wrongly and receive absolutely no life transforming power from it. Ready? When I come to the word of God, mainly in hearing it, to be entertained, whether emotionally or intellectually. Again, I go back to the point of saying that there is a possibility of people who relate to the word of God merely on an entertainment level. I mean, especially when you hear a charismatic speaker. It could be a charismatic speaker that, that's able to, to make your emotions feel a certain way. It could be a, not even a charismatic speaker, but a very deep-minded individual that keeps you engaged even for hours when they speak. It could be all those things. But here's the problem with any of those things, that if in the end it is not to fuel your love, it can have a surface-level impact on how Christ wants to live in you. You know what's amazing? You see this with a group of people in the book of Acts. When Paul was preaching in a place called Athens, it says that his spirit was stirred because he looked and saw all the idols. You know, it's like you going to modern-day Las Vegas, and you look around and you think to yourself, this is grieving to my spirit. That's how Paul felt in Athens. And Paul couldn't hold it into himself. He says, I'm going to start preaching. So he goes to synagogues and he starts preaching. He goes on the streets and he starts preaching. And word gets around that there's this guy, Paul, 
in Athens, and he's teaching something about this resurrection and this Jesus. And so these philosophers inquire of Paul, and they come, and they say, Hey, Paul, uh, we hear strange things. What's this babbler saying? Would you come, and would you, would you tell us about this concept that you are preaching? Paul, of course, took advantage of such a situation. But you know what's amazing is how the Bible goes out of its way to describe these men and to tell us their motive behind this. So it's in Acts 17, verse 21. And look how the Bible describes these Athenians. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's what the Athenians would do. They enjoyed telling and hearing things that they've never heard before. So when they heard Paul teaching this new thing to their ears, their motivation initially was merely on an entertainment level. And I'm afraid that many people within the church approach preaching this very same way. We just want to hear something new. We just want to hear something that's never been said before. We want to hear something that we might have heard but said differently. We just want to be stirred. That's a dangerous way of doing so. It's a dangerous way of approaching the word of God. Is it a preacher's job to excavate and to dig and to find truths in the Bible? Is it his responsibility to cover the whole counsel of God and not just focus on one thing over and over again? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to go deeper in the word. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to discover greater truths of God. But if that pursuit, again, is not anchored, it's not tied to love, you're going to fall into vanity soon enough. And that's why some people are scratching their heads because they see people going to conferences and going to meetings and getting tapes and getting all these downloads and yet their lives have nothing to show for what they learn. And then you mess everybody up. To my second point, which is not to be entertained, but pursuing knowledge, even spiritual knowledge, for the sake of knowledge. None of us are perfect, okay? And and we strive to be like Christ more and more and... It doesn't mean that as we pursue God that we won't stumble along the way. That is very possible. But it's also possible that even over a span of years that there is not even a hint of character development when a person even exposes themselves to the word of God because they have no intention for the word of God to affect their character in the first place. Just like people pursue knowledge in other areas of life just for the sake of having knowledge, You think the Bible doesn't have that same threat? You think people can't come to the scriptures with that same kind of motivation? Absolutely. And when it comes to a person, it leads to vanity. So Paul retracts. And perhaps these these persons here were doing it for entertainment's sake. And he says here, the aim of our charge is love. That's the preacher's job. But I want to conclude with this thought. That is not just the preacher's job. That is the hearer's job as well. What you have is this recipe for miracles. When you have elders in a church that approach this word and pray over this word and organize their sermons and study with this in the back of their minds, I want want the people of God to love God more intensely. I want the people of God to love each other 
more fervently. I want the people of God to have a greater zeal for the world. But then when you have the people who come on a weekly basis and they are ready to hear what God has to say because of what? Because I want to love God more. And I want to learn how to be more like Jesus in my relationship with others. I can guarantee you, miracles will happen. Miracles will happen in a church. But it must be a joint effort. I always allude to John the Baptist as another example. Going back to that entertainment factor. You know, I've met some people, listen to this. I've met some people that unfortunately, to my knowledge, are not in a good place with their walk with the Lord. But there was a season in their life where they loved on fire, in your face, hardcore preaching. And they didn't even voice that to me. Like, oh, I love this preacher because when he, oh, he gives it to you when he preaches. He doesn't hold back. He just tells it as it is. And there's something even, listen to this, there's something even about conviction that can lead to a mere stimulation and not true repentance. Isn't that a scary thought? What a terrifying thought. That you like a John the Baptist style preaching because it makes you feel in a certain way and has nothing to do with you being drawn closer to the Lord. It's the boldness that is attractive. It's the fact that this person isn't speaking like all the other boring Pharisees out there that are just mumbling along with their words. Herod did that. Herod approached John the Baptist in such a way. It says he was greatly perplexed when he heard him preach. He was like, this guy is, this guy is something else. I don't understand it, but I love it. And a few verses later, he cuts the guy's head off. And so, in this simple message this morning, as we understand God's laying of the foundation of the church, doctrine. If this is not your church this morning, Please prayfully, and if you're looking for a church, consider a Bible-believing, preaching church. Don't get whipped up in the emotion of a service. Don't get whipped up in all these other factors. Look for a church that honors the word of God. Doctrine, but not just doctrine. Doctrine with the aim of love in the end. From the pulpit and from the pew. When we do that, miracles will happen. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word because to love you is to love your word. And we just ask this morning that as we start a new year, that if our aim towards the word of God has been anything but love, change it in us. May this pulpit, whoever's behind it, prepare and pray and proclaim with the motivation of love, loving God's people and desiring for the people of God to grow in their love. And may the pews, as it is your will, to fill them as you would. But may every person be ready to hear with a desire to be changed in their love. And not just in their hearing, but in their reading and in their studying. Say, Jesus, show me who you are. And make me like Paul, who's able to translate the gospel even into how I deal with my affairs in life. Please, Lord, you're so patient. We love you. You're so understanding, we praise you. And we ask God, you just bring us back to the basics. We do not want to get lost in speculations and debate. We don't want to handle this word inappropriately. Bring us into your will as a church. 
And we believe that miracles will happen in our lives and our relationships with one another. We praise you, Lord, in thanksgiving for the simplicity of this message. And we take it to heart today as your people. In Jesus' name.